Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Friday, June 11. Well, just ahead, the pioneer in targeted drug therapy misses its big target. Plus, a radio company goes into the casino business. And we're drilling down on Wells Fargo. But can credit cards be the path to redemption for this troubled lender? We'll ask Chuck Lieberman, the CIO at Advisors Capital Management. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening every day as your one stop for most important business news stories of the day. But hit that subscribe button. Make sure you don't miss a single episode. Follow us to catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind stocks on the move. Joining me right now, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac Tell me the most three important business stories of the day. Okay, Corey, let's let's get started. Number one, a bill in the House, the U.S. House of Representatives, seeks to break up Amazon and other big tech companies. This bipartisan legislation aims to effectively split Amazon and others into two companies or shed their private label products. Of course, there's an uphill battle to get this approved into law, but it is uh, something to watch. Saber-rattling is saber-rattling, but... Uh... Um, there's definitely, I think, a changing of the tide when it comes to watching what these companies do and what their impact is on our society, not just the impact on their own uh, pockets. There have been a lot of balloons floated about this type of idea, so now they're going to see how far they can take it. Saber-rattling and balloons, bad combination. (laughs) Exactly. Number two, Norway plans to expand its green energy industry, but it also plans to expand continue exploiting its oil and gas resources and will keep developing new fields. Norway, of course, is Western Europe's biggest oil producing nation, and it produces most of its electricity from hydropower. We love some Norway here. You know, you probably don't even know this, that around our studio, all the conference rooms are named after fjords in Norway, as are the offices. If I had a dollar for every time you've told me that, I'd probably have $500. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to memorize my fjords. What else you got? Actually, let me let me do the third story. All right. Yeah. All right. I got a third story for you. Okay. Third most important business story is a new release from Tesla. They announced a new car. They're calling it the Plaid. You know why they're calling it Plaid? I don't. In the movie Spaceballs, uh, at a certain point, they crank up the spaceship to go to ludicrous mode. And when yeah. it gets a little further, it just comes up with Plaid. I, I don't know. It's I remember that. Um, well, the Plaid movie. Plus, which they mm-hmm. also were going to release, they got they canceled that early this week. But last night in front of a hyped-up crowd at the company's Fremont, California 
headquarters. They announced the plaid car. It looks to me like a Model S, the steering wheel shaped differently and some stuff's different in the interior. But CEO Elon Musk said it would go from zero to 60 in less than two seconds, making it the world's quickest car on market. I don't know the value of getting from zero to 60 in two seconds versus three, but maybe I just drive too slow. In any case, the Washington Post said the event where Musk appeared after about a half an hour late. But uh, uh, when he did show up, well, Isaac, let me play for you. I have a quick audio clip of what happened at Musk's introduction. There were some sound glitches and all, but I want you to listen to, you know, it's about 30 seconds or so. Um, Here's the voice of Tesla Model S designer Franz von Holzhausen. And listen to see if you can hear the sound of the second voice when they played the sort of sizzle reel of how cool this 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 uh, Tesla plaid was going to look. Uh, they played a cool video, and uh, here is Franz. We might be breaking a few records, <laughs> but more about that later. So let's get Elon out here and have him show you how we made the best car in the world. Tesla, big tech company, they forgot to turn on the sound. So someone's like plugging something in, or here they go. A car of any kind. The Model S. This is an ambitious goal to create a whole new kind of car. A lot of Wall Street is betting Tesla can't get it done. You recognize that voice, Isaac? Yeah, but I can't place it. It's me. Well, well, well. They use a clip of my voice to promote this car, this money losing company. This Twitter blocking CEO, and Elon Musk, he's blocked me on Twitter. He uses my voice to promote this stupid car that he's calling Plaid. He must not have known that his team was using your voice. Or he'd still take it personally. Anyway, I wish him a lot of success with their Plaid, their money-losing cars. Obviously, the company makes all their money selling environmental credits, not automobiles. But Now, Corey. I wish him a lot of success. Good luck, Elon. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I want to look at Vertex Pharma. Vertex Pharma, that trades under VRTX. Shares fell 11% today, and they've fallen over 26% in a year. What's going on with Vertex? Well, Vertex Pharma, based in Boston, a really important company, one of the sort of pioneers in targeted drug development. Uh, They dropped the development of a rare liver disease treatment uh, that was called VX864. Well, it had looked promising in phase one testing, but in phase two testing, they just announced it didn't work. The uh, uh, Let me tell you about kind of what this thing was targeting. So alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, just sometimes known as alpha-1, it can cause liver problems uh, and better known adult lung disease as well. In people with, with alpha-1, large amounts of abnormal alpha-1 antitrypsin protein are made in the liver. So this protein... Uh, gets stuck in the liver. Uh, it's supposed to go out into the bloodstream, but about 85% of it for people who have this particular type of protein um, uh, gets stuck in the liver. And if the liver can't break down the abnormal protein, the liver itself gets damaged and scarred. And if that isn't bad enough, the blood that would normally receive uh, that that AAT, that antitrypsin protein, or the, uh, the alpha antitrypsin protein, not abnormally, but the normal stuff, when the blood doesn't get that, the blood can't um, process cigarette smoke and air pollution. So not only can this damage the liver, it makes people more susceptible to lung disease uh, because of the, the, the blood's inability to deal with it. 
So currently, there's no way to prevent abnormal AAT from getting stuck in a liver. And since not everyone with alpha-A gets a liver disease, it seemed like there were some other things that could contribute to liver disease. And the researchers were studying these other things, hoping to find new treatments. That's what Vertex Pharma was working on for so long. Now, they've tried a bunch of targeted molecules. They would invent a molecule and test it in people to see if it would work. Now, an earlier molecule developed by Vertex also didn't work. This was called VX814. Not to be confused with, with VX864. Right, VX864. That's uh, the one that was scrapped today. Well, in, uh, in October, they scrapped VX814, and uh, they did it because they were finding liver toxicity. So what they didn't know is whether the molecule mechanism, the thing that they were injecting into people, whether that was causing it or the whole idea was causing it. So even though this thing failed today and they announced this failure today, and as you mentioned, the stock kind of collapsed, the CEO really thought that they uh, learned a lot about how the liver works and how these molecules work. And maybe even in this failure, there's hope for scientists in the future. You'll remember 814 was a prematurely terminated study, so we never got to the finish. And the reason we terminated it early is because we had liver toxicity, right? So one of the key, key questions, we, we always believe, and you'll remember we talked about this, whether that liver toxicity was specific to VX814 or if it was on mechanism. Clearly, if it was on mechanism, that's very, very uh, concerning because that doesn't have a path forward. What I can tell you with the results today is our belief that it was molecule-specific has been confirmed. There is no on-mechanism to- on toxicity. That is the way they really delivered important. the drug. That is a big takeaway. Second, with VX814, we didn't get to the finish line. So we weren't able to assess whether we could move um, functional AAT levels. We couldn't assess the time course, and we couldn't assess whether the AAT we produced actually had the characteristics of native AAT. Well, yeah, that's, that's the alpha and that we've been able to do here. AAT. And maybe most importantly for the future, we have the parameters now from the human trial so that we can refine our models to get to the right exposures in the liver to optimize some of the other parameters that David talked about so that the molecules that come from the lab can get us to those levels of greater than or equal to 11. I think it's just super interesting. That was uh, Rishma Kulramani, the CEO of Vertex. And so I just thought it was super interesting that they actually had a lot of learning that took place in this failed trial. And maybe that might still point the way forward and give some hope to those people suffering um, the, the alpha-1 liver disease. Corey, what is your next drill down? We've talked so much cybersecurity lately. Let's look at CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike uh, trades under CRWD. Shares rose just over 1% today. They've gained 143% in a year. What's new with CrowdStrike? Yeah, I was just reading up on this company last night, and I was thinking about um, how to organize cybersecurity companies in my mind. Um, And uh, think of this, right? Think of these companies as tools in a toolbox. Now, one company might be a Phillips head screwdriver, one might be a hammer, another company might be measuring tape. You know, if you're lucky, the company's duct tape. 
But when we talk about a total addressable market for cybersecurity, TAM, right? These companies love to talk about the TAM. Well, I think I've certainly gotten fooled by these guys thinking they're all alike, right? And that the TAM of fixing stuff, the total TAM for cybersecurity might be great, but they've only got one tool in the toolbox, right? You can't, because the total addressable market for fixing stuff might be big, but that doesn't mean you can fix everything, all the stuff with a Phillips head screwdriver. So what you're saying is, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of metaphors. I don't even know how to unpack all that. Toolbox, screwdrivers, one-stop shop. So what is CrowdStrike? Where do they fit in this toolbox? So I think um, it's interesting how they look at that world, right? Uh They look at the world uh, of hacking problems as modules. They look at their solutions as as the tools to attack those modules. So they figure out which of their tools address which problem or module. And then they look at the other problems out there, the other modules, and figure out if they need to build or buy tools to fix those problems so they can really address that total addressable market. So that approach has led them to what they say is a greater opportunity or a greater TAM, total addressable market. Here's the CFO, Bert Podbear. Since the IPO, if you remember, we had 10 modules and we were across five markets. We grew to about, we grew to exactly 19 modules, five modules today across seven markets. And we did that through a variety of things, right? We, we did it across our core endpoint security. We did it through cloud security. Um, we did it through identity protection and log management. And, you know, the majority of those modules that we added um, were uh, inorganic. Um, sorry, organic, and then some were inorganic, like we acquired preempt and we acquired um, Humio, both one in the zero trust base and one around XDR log management. And in that same period, when we added all those modules, you, you saw that our TAM has expanded from about 25 billion at the IPO to 36 billion today, um, and then it estimated to grow to around 44 billion in 2023. And then in our webinar uh, that we did not long ago, we outlined a more ambitious path to potential 100 billion uh, plus TAM in FY 2025, and that included normal organic TAM growth. It, it had you know current roadmap activities, future initiatives, and of course the cloud security opportunity. So I, you know, I, I, I usually don't believe in companies when they talk about their TAM, but I did think it was interesting how they addressed the notion, not only ex- explained or excused why they kept raising the number, but I think it is interesting how they look at the world and then organize their challenges uh, through the modules and then the tools they offer to attack those modules. Corey, what is your next drill down? Urban One. Urban One, that trades under U-O-N-E. Shares gained 33% today, and they've gained 1,262% over the past 12 months. And really most of that over the last six or seven months, yeah. So talk to me about Urban One. I've never heard of this company. Uh, You know, I hadn't either until I saw the stock take off. Uh, uh, It was a small company or a small uh, publicly listed company with a lot of debt. Um, But this, you know, the stock was about a dollar in the fall. It started taking off in December. It's worth noting that the CEO, Alfred Liggins, bought about a million shares in Thanksgiving on top of the 14 million or so he already owned. Uh, Again, the price is just above a dollar. So this company has a really nice niche business of urban radio stations. Yes, that's the code for black or at least black radio. That's what they've called black radio my whole life is urban. Um, And it's a good business. It's a profitable business. Um, And this company is one of the most important black-owned businesses in the country. 
um, CEO Liggins and his mother, Caroline Hughes, owned 53% of this company. Um, she started the business. As an, she's a legend in the radio business. Um, uh, indeed, she's in the Radio Hall of Fame. I don't know if you are familiar with her. But uh, this is not just a radio company anymore. Now it's trying to get into the casino business. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the city of Richmond, Virginia, their casino advisory panel recommended that uh, Urban One be allowed to build the $600 million one casino and resort in Richmond. Now, if the city council approves the recommendation and then the voters support it in a November referendum, well, the resort will be the first casino under black ownership in the country. And when Richmond had nailed the, narrowed the field, there were a bunch of proposals out there. They'd narrowed it down to two. And uh, CEO Liggins in the last conference call explained how the two proposals are different. I thought it was super interesting. Our proposal is uh, on the south side of Richmond in an industrial area uh, that uh, doesn't really impact neighborhoods and actually has widespread support from the largely minority neighborhoods and populations that are, that surround it because of the amenities um, that our project would bring. Uh, the uh, the competing project that's uh, sponsored by the Cordish companies is yeah in North Richmond in a trendy restaurant you know bar uh, area um, called Scott's Edition um, uh, that has the exact opposite you know uh, population. So ultimately, it's going to come down to where the city uh, sees uh, itself wanting to spark uh, further economic development. So, you know, urban radio station business getting into an urban development business uh, with this casino, uh, they're closer. They're not there yet, but they're a lot closer. Uh, they're the only one on the table now. That other proposal uh, didn't make it uh, past the, uh, the panel that was part of the city council with the advisory to the city council that this, that this thing should be approved. All right, so I've got a question about this. Yeah. The $1 million in additional shares that he bought at Thanksgiving, what are those right. worth now? About $20 million. Wow, good for him. <laughs> wow. All right, up next. Yeah, good for them. I mean, why? Yeah, you know, hey. Uh, I think it's, we'll, we'll see what happens with the project and if they get it done. But, um, uh, you know, betting on yourself, that can be a pretty good bet. Yep. Right up next, Chuck Lieberman, the CIO of Advisors Capital Management. We're going to look at the business of Wells Fargo. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. Our guest, Chuck Lieberman, joins us. He's from CIO Advisors Capital Management, and he's brought a company that we all know and most people don't love Wells Fargo. Based right here in San Francisco, where I am, Chuck, you're on the East Coast, but Wells Fargo has made a really bad name for itself over the last few years. Yeah, they've got a lot to overcome. Uh, they are not only in your doghouse and the doghouse of a lot of their customers, they're in the Fed's doghouse. Uh, so they've got to work their way out of that ditch. Uh, and yet you like this business. Let's talk about what this business is. And uh, importantly, um, completely new management, really. You've got a new CEO who is a, who's, I, I'm, he's not a part-time CEO by any stretch of the imagination, 
But it is also worth noting that he, he lives in New York City and the headquarters are, are based in uh, San Francisco. Uh, but he's clean house. Uh, he's come in the last three years and gotten rid of just about half of the executives there. Yeah, that's right. And he's a very highly regarded uh, uh, individual. Um, he's changing not only the culture, but a little bit also the business model. Of Charlie Scharf, I should say. I should drop it. Charles Scharf, right. Uh, Charlie Scharf. Um, and he's changed the business model a bit, and we'll probably talk about that. But uh, the expectation. So instead of the old business model, which was secretly open bank accounts for a bunch of your customers to make your account numbers look good and reward your employees for doing illegal stuff, that's not the model anymore. Right. Now it's uh, actually generate real honest-to-goodness business. And, and in full disclosure, I took out a mortgage from uh, Wells Fargo some years ago, and uh, I was told that I had to open up a bank account in order to get a favorable rate on the mortgage, and I needed to use that bank account to pay make my monthly payments. Um, and so I created an automatic transfer from my bank account at J.P. Morgan into my Wells Fargo account to pay the monthly mortgage. Uh, so there were a number of those things that they did. Uh, most of that, is, as far as I was concerned, was just noise. But some of the other stuff they did was not really noise. And people had accounts opened up for them, and they didn't even know about it. So they got uh, uh, pretty far afield, uh, pretty rambunctious, and uh, the Federal Reserve really slapped their wrists in a very heavy way. And that's why Sharp really had to come in, clean house, uh, which is exactly what he did. Uh, and now the company is off in a new direction, trying to build a business, um, do it uh, smartly, uh, reduce costs. Uh, one of the businesses they're getting into in a much bigger way is credit cards. They're taking on uh, Citi and J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. They're offering very favorable terms on credit cards to build up that business. Uh, and that'll be a great profit center for them going forward. One of the reasons when I was a portfolio manager, I didn't like financials or insurance companies is because, you know, normally with a, with a company I'm doing research on, but the limit to my ability to know what's going on is the limit of my actual hard work. But in the case of a bank or an insurance company, it's a black box. You really don't know what their underwriting standards are. You don't know where the bad loans might lie until they tell you and it's too late. What gives you the confidence with this company that they're when you look at their performance, that their underwriting is they're giving cards to the right people, that they're making loans to people who can pay them back. I think uh, you're absolutely right, Corey. Uh, dealing with uh, or investing in banks and insurance companies, for that matter, is, is a bit more difficult. Uh, you've got to have some degree of confidence in the management team. Um, and it's therefore that much more interesting that Warren Buffett had a lot of confidence in the original management team that got kicked out. Stumped, and engaged, yeah. engaged in some of that bad practice. And Buffett was a big investor in uh, Wells Fargo. But uh, Scharf has done a great job at his previous institution uh, at Bank of New York. Uh, and uh, so I think that he's going to come in with the, with the plan to really clean the place out and really make it a very effective competitor. And on the basis of his past track record, uh, I'm willing to put some money, some dollars uh, on his uh, on that spot on the board. So talk to me about why getting into the credit card business is a great thing right now. Well, the, the performance of the credit card business has been much, much stronger than expected. Uh, there were widespread expectations that these companies would take a lot of losses because of the pandemic. In fact, that did not happen. 
uh, credit card performance has been much better than expected. And they build into the rates that they charge uh, significant spreads that protect them against defaults. Uh, and they also charge the, uh, uh, the companies, the retailers that uh, use the cards that enable you to go into a store and buy whatever you're going to buy. So it's a great business. Uh, it's become progressively more competitive. Uh, so the earnings on the capital in that business have declined some, but it's still a fabulous business. And where, where else do you see them growing? I, but you, I should mention the turnover. So uh, John Shrewsbury was a CFO for a long time, and I, I thought he was terrific and really well regarded, and didn't seem to be part of the problems there. But he, you know, he, it was it was uh, baby and bathwater. It seems in this clearing of the uh, executive decks there. Well, that's uh, typically actually what happens. Uh, it's not always clear exactly who um, made the bad moves. Um, and sometimes it's just better to clear to clean house in a broader way. Uh, someone may have been uh, uninvolved in directly imposing these bad po- policies, but um, if they knew enough about it and didn't intervene to uh, try to correct them before they blew up, uh, then in some sense they're culpable as well. And that, w- that ex- finally extended to the board. It seemed that there were some recalcitrant board members who d- didn't make – well, let me, let me rephrase that. There were a lot of people who looked at this company and said, this board needs to make big changes, not incremental changes. And for a long time, the changes were incremental. I think the changes in the board maybe have really cleared the way for bigger changes at the company. Well, you often hear that about a lot of these institutions. I think the same – exact statement could have been made about Citigroup. Um, again, they made uh, significant changes, but not enough, maybe incremental. And finally, yet another change in the CEO, they brought in Jane Fraser to uh, to really move the, the bank forward. Uh, and that, by the way, is another one that I like, but uh, Wells Fargo is even cheaper. Well, when we look at uh, the pay- Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, that also seemed to really shore up uh, all banks, but these guys got very involved in that. I think they did nearly 200,000 loans, like almost uh, well over $10 billion in loans last year uh, as part of PPP, which was kind of an, a, a nice program to really shore up some balance sheets for banks. Um, and these guys, again, uh, uh, emerge out of this thing in a better position than they, than they went into it. Yeah, well, I think every bank uh, wanted to get in on the PPP lending activity because uh, the government was guaranteeing all those loans. Uh, They were basically, you couldn't, if you filled out the paperwork properly, you knew you were going to get paid back. And so everyone wanted to do it. Uh, And it was especially timely because loan demand was weak. And so you didn't have very strong demand from normal customers. So it was nice to have that kind of uh, incremental activity. So when you look at this company, when you do your analysis of their results, what are the things, what are the metrics you look for? What are the things you're really trying to make sure that they've got this uh, ship going straight? So there are a bunch of things. Uh, Start off with valuation because you can take more risks if the valuation is cheap enough. And this is really about, that's about the, your decision as a, as an investor, I guess, which I'm a big fan of you and a big fan of, especially (laughs) when you tell me I've got great questions. Uh, But I think, what, what I'm wondering is when you look at the business, right, you know, like presumably net income, uh, net interest margin is one of the ways you look at banks and their ability to return profitable uh, results from their underwriting activities. What are the metrics you look at for this business to make sure they're doing things right? Well, I look at things like the profitability of the business. So prior to this whole blow up, they had a 17% return on, on capital. 
That's really high. Fantastic. Uh, they they and Bank of America were the two leading companies in that area. Um, both of them were obviously doing extremely well, but their return on capital now is only about 7%. So they've been s- severely constrained in a whole bunch of ways, added costs to deal with compliance. Um, they have too many people relative to the size of the business, and that's one of the things that uh, Charlie Scharf is focusing on, trying to bring costs down, get uh, to be competitive on a cost basis with the size of the business. Um, so I think there are a lot of tailwinds that are behind this company that will help them over the next couple of years. So one of them, for example, is uh, they were punished for all of that uh, misbehavior with a an asset cap. The Fed doesn't permit I was hoping you were to mention that. This is, you oh, know, absolutely. Because the, the thing that gets the headlines when banks get in trouble is the fees they have to pay or the, the, the regulatory fines they have to pay. But it, the the Fed came up with this idea of an asset cap, just basically saying your assets, you're, you are – you are too big, not too big to fail, but too big to succeed. We can't, we can't let you get any bigger, and we're putting a cap on all the assets for this bank. Right. Well, it's, I would put it a little differently. We're, we're not going to let you grow while, right. we're, while you're in our doghouse. Other banks can grow, and uh, they're big competitors, the other big money center banks. They're all growing. They're all doing fine. You cannot grow. And that's a severe constraint. And so they've got to absorb these extra costs of compliance with the same size bank. And so it cuts uh, directly into profitability. And that's one of the primary reasons their their profit margins have declined as much as they have. Uh, fix your own house, right. The, the asset cap of $1.95 trillion. Um, uh, again, it was, it, it, it was such an interesting punishment. I, I, don't, I don't remember the Fed ever doing that before at any, any institution, but it really was a way to sort of Put a put a line in the sand out in front of them, but say you've got to fix things before you can get past this. Is That's there right. hope that they will get past it? That the Fed will relax that? Oh yeah, uh, it's probably not imminent. Um, the 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 event that's most imminent is CCAR, the uh, stress test. That's coming up at the end of June. Uh, when the Fed will announce the results of all of the stress tests for all of the major banks. Uh, every bank is expected to pass this time around. I was going to say, is that really a test? They all pass every year. Yeah, but some of them have uh, been marginally passed where they had to resubmit uh, their application and fix things. So it's not immaterial. It is a problem uh, in that it's publicly announced, and so there's a limit to how much a Fed could really fail a bank. That would be an incredibly devastating uh, piece of news to the public if they ever said a bank was uh, not passing the stress test. But uh, this time around, the banks were subject to very, very stringent uh, requirements because if you remember a year ago, uh, the economy was in a world of hurt. Uh, The pandemic had shut everything down. People were worried that there were going to be massive loan losses across the board for banks, insurance companies, every investment firm around. Uh, of course, none of that happened, but the banks were required to put up more capital. Uh, they were told not they were not permitted to raise their dividends. Uh, the dividends were fixed. They, they effectively suspended all of the stock buybacks. So they were, in effect, forced to retain more capital and to build up their capital base. But then the stress, to, uh, the, the results of the uh, performance of the economy and the consumer and businesses was much, much better than expected. And the, and the failures didn't even come close to what had been feared. 
And so everyone really did pass an honest-to-goodness stress test, um, and therefore it's very hard for the Fed now to say, oh, by the way, you passed the real-world tr- stress test, but you're not right. passing our st- stress test. So, so again, uh, back to my contention, it's not the hardest test in the world if all the kids pass. Uh, at, at my daughter's graduation yesterday in the eighth grade, they asked how many kids had, over the course of the year, played sports, and a lot of kids stood up, and how many kids had been in a club, and a lot of kids stood up. And they asked how many kids in the eighth grade had got at least one A over the course of the last three years of middle school. And every kid stood up, which told me something about the school, I suppose, uh, that the stress test of an A wasn't that much if all the banks get a stress test of an A. But this this notion of what a tier one asset is, um, uh, the, the way I look at it is it's, it's the banks are saying we might not be able to under, or the, the examiners are not saying are saying we might not know what all of these assets are or what their true uh, credit worthiness is. But the tier one assets we can evaluate and we require you to have more of them. Uh, and they've done that. Um, but, you know, that cuts both ways. Because the role of a bank is not only to take deposits from people like you and me, the role of the bank is also to provide credit to companies that need it. And one of the things that the uh, uh, the government has done with uh, through the Fed and through various other agencies is they've made it much more difficult for banks to lend. And it's a real push-pull because on the one hand, things like the Community Reinvestment Act, the banks right. are required to make mortgages in the inner city. So they're telling the banks, you must make loans to people who otherwise might not qualify. And then they turn around on the other side and say, oh, but by the way, you better not have any loans that default, because if you do, we're going to punish you for that. So it's it's a very difficult balancing act, not just for the bank, but also for the regulators. And I think that the regulators often screw it up. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, I think the, the regulators contribute enormously to the housing crisis back in, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago, 1997. Sure, by encouraging home ownership to people who couldn't afford it, and yeah, right, and and creating a, a bubble in housing that they they should have seen it was right in front of them, but yet they didn't. So, uh, what what has effectively happened is by creating these incre- incremental capital requirements on banks and and basically slapping banks banks on the wrist for making loans to smaller or middle market companies, they've basically gotten the banks out of that business and other entities have entered. So there's a whole class of companies called business development companies that have gotten into that business in a major way. Um, I like a lot of them. I think of them as non-bank banks. Right. Um, but uh, and they earn very good returns and pay very good yields. Uh, But that's a direct consequence of the Fed's and the government's policy on bank lending. That's interesting. I don't know if you saw JMP just sold theirs. It was called Harvest, another business development company. But yeah, um, uh, interesting stuff with these guys. So, so basically, your your thesis uh, again outside of valuation, but when you look at the the business of Wells Fargo, you see their the things that they have underperformed uh, at as a result of sort of cleaning up their regulatory mess and the associated expenses, and that those start to drift away and you have a better capitalized bank with a strong economy and low interest rates uh, right now kind of emerging uh, with a chance to really make some money. Right, and and rising profitability because as those costs disappear, right. all of that revenue falls right to the bottom line. That's enormously profitable. The ability to grow again, very helpful. 
Uh, and then, as you just mentioned, uh, net interest margin. So all of the banks have been squeezed by the fact that interest rates have come down so much and they can't take deposit rates below zero or they really want to avoid doing that. So their profit margins have gotten squeezed. So as rates rise, as inevitably they will over the next couple of years, as the economy is booming this year and, and recovers over the next year and or inflation. two. And inflation. And inflation. All of that will lead to a normalization of interest rates, and that means a normalization of interest margins, and that means an increase in profitability. Well, Wells Fargo, I'm, I'm still not a fan. Just, you know, bad behavior leaves a bad taste in the mouth, but it's a company to keep an eye on here, especially since they're right down the street from here in San Francisco. Chuck Lieberman, thank you very much. Uh, we, we appreciate your time and, and, and your thoughtfulness. Chuck Lieberman, the CIO of Advisors Capital Management. All right, up next on the drill down the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about that 1.95 trillion asset cap on Wells Fargo. So how much has that cost the company? Well, there's a back of the envelope calculation that uh, might expose just how much money they left on the table uh, having to uh, adhere to that asset cap. We'll have that bite, that one number right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. Please hit that subscribe button and catch every show. And if you want to let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down, we're looking for ideas all the time. Hit us up on Twitter or even Instagram at DrillDownPod. And of course, it's the at symbol, kids, at DrillDownPod. That's where we are on the, on the socials. You can contact us directly on our website at bizpod.net. All right, that drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, if Wells Fargo had been allowed to grow and didn't have that cap on its assets, what if they had just grown their business like every other bank and blown right through that cap like everyone else? Well, a terrific Bloomberg reporter, former colleague of ours, Hannah Levitt, did an article where she tried to figure out just if they had just, just penciled out. What if they hadn't been stopped? What if that business had grown the way every other bank's business has grown? And what if their profit margins had stayed the same? Well, then Wells Fargo would not have left $4 billion in profits uh, because of that cap. But that cap uh, has capped those profits and capped those assets and effectively capping profits for a while here. And maybe, Isaac, when that comes off, uh, they've got a chance to really grow at Wells Fargo if they show that they uh, deserve it. We'll see. Time will tell. That's a real anchorman comment. Time like <laughs> Very right, innocuous, not taking a side, All not, right, well, not expressing you. an opinion. Thank you for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The show is edited by Ben Wilson, Maggie Renshaw, our senior producer, Alicia Alban, our chief of staff, and Samantha Fennell, our head of ad sales. Shout out to my daughters. One turned 16 today at the other, as I mentioned, just graduated from the eighth grade. Isaac, you know what I got when I graduated from the eighth grade? Uh, a piece of coal. It was ninth grade. There was no ceremony. There was no, I just got ninth grade. That's all I got. And of course, a Same great here. summer camp, Corey. In any case, our theme song, Moving Average by Structural Dynamics. You're listening to it right now. And thanks to Jorn Lysogen and the fantastic crew at Shack 15. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Thank you.